WZSU Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about housing, politics, and think tanks. Today the program, we launch a new season of the show, and what better way than to go back to Palo Alto and talk about the Embarcadero Institute, a local policy research shop <laughs> uh, that's, in, in a way, they're a think tank who advocates for low density. But uh, on the program today, we have uh, Stan Oklobja. He is a research director for California EMB, and we'll be picking apart the actual claims made by the Embarco Institute in their papers. Uh, without further ado, uh, let's get into things. So, uh, Stan, thank you so much for being here to talk about uh, the lovely, uh, prestigious Embarcadero Institute. Hey, Mark, thanks for bringing me on. Um, yeah, always happy to, uh, to spread the word about our favorite SF waterfront named Think Tank. That is, okay, so before we talk about any details, this is my favorite mystery about the Embarcadero Institute, is they have a logo which is about the SF Embarcadero, uh, but they are based, I, I believe, like, probably they live near the street Embarcadero in Palo Alto. So this is them being funny, I guess. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, I'm from the East Bay originally, but uh, it's been a while since I've been to Palo Alto, so my oh, knowledge... Missing out. <laughs> yeah. So, the Embarcadero Institute, they have been around. I think you cannot find any any reference to them before 2019. Uh, I don't know if they were on paper before that. You know, they're just, you know. But let's talk about kind of the ecosystem they spend, you know, their time in. And I think this has to do with the entire world of housing projections. In the most important number, we're going to talk about a lot of different agencies and stuff, but the most important interface is RENA, the Regional Housing Needs Allocation. So uh, just for people who don't know anything about this, what's what's the general, you know, one-minute pitch on what RENA is, what it does, and why? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's kind of a complicated thing, but essentially um, California's HCD, Department of Housing and Community Development, sort of sets goals for housing production based on job growth in varieties of um, multi-county, generally multi-county sort of uh, conurbations in California. So up there in the Bay Area, you all are part of ABAG. They all have these funny like acronym names too, so you're ABAG. Um, ABAG's yeah, not as funny as SCAG is down in. <laughs> I was just about to say, I'm down yeah. here in Los Angeles where I'm part of SCAG, um, which is, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a worse name than ABAG. I don't know. Um, also, also, this is one of my pet peeves. You know, it's supposed to be regional, and ABAG, it covers the Bay Area in a kind of sensible way. SCAG, because Southern California has the worst counties, Riverside <laughs> and San Bernardino go all the way out east. Like, what? Make some reasonably sized counties down there. What are you doing? No, it's craziness. I mean, like, so I, I, I come to the housing world. Um, I'm a political scientist by training, uh, did state politics. And so one of the things that, you know, we do when we're looking at data and stuff is look at the county level because everything in America is sort of at the county level. And, like, it makes a lot of sense, you know, until you start to get to about Nevada. And then you just yeah. get these gigantic western counties, right? So, like, I mean... I think one of the largest counties in America is uh, like Riverside County, I believe. It's just massive. It's like state level. So, yeah. yeah. You know. <laughs> Which means that you have the San Bernardino Riverside metro area is like the size of a state. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's it's very crazy. stupid. 
Yeah, I guess like uh, in ye olden times when you were surveying the place by horseback, you know, it just was a lot easier to do things like that. Uh, by the way, just a sideline to make sure we get disclosure. You know, you do have a dog in the fight. You're with CAEMB. You know, you are not, uh, as, as as I am, just a person who has a blood feud against the Polito uh, <laughs> NIMBYs. But uh, so, you know, uh, of course, keep that in mind. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're having arguments on a technical basis. But uh, continue with uh, talking about SCAG and more. Oh, yeah. So, no, um, like you said, I am the research director of California EMB, just signed on about five months ago. So, uh, you know, I am making the big EMB shill bucks with uh, California EMB. Um, so what were we talking about? Yeah. So anyways, there are these um, housing goals based on uh, job production that um, the Department of uh, Housing and Community Development assigned to these uh, sort of multi-county um, uh, organizations. And um, it's um, these numbers, these targets are sort of kind of trickle down to local jurisdictions um, and local jurisdictions should um, rezone the land within them to accommodate for this sort of housing growth, right, along an eight-ish year cycle, generally. Uh, I guess about a year ago, right before COVID hit, uh, talked a little bit about the kind of local methodology. We had Victoria Fierce, who was on the methodology you know, committee, kind of talking about the nitty gritty of, you get this big number, you know, at the state level, and it kind of splits up between all these different regional levels. And, you know, I think between between the four big ones, San Diego, SCAG, ABAG, and then the Sacramento one, it's 80% of everything. Mm-hmm. It's just That's those correct. four. Uh, and, you know, kind of it's divvied up all the way. To, it reminds me, I, I've said like before, of Goss Plan, like this big Soviet <laughs> system, hierarchical, and like it just you know, kind of goes all the way down. Uh, but, you know, I think here we're not talking so much about how it's divvied up on the local level, because that's that, my, it's very interesting. Palo Alto is getting more of a weight than it has in the past. We're talking, I think, today mostly about the big number, which is HCD saying in all of California, what is the big number and what is it between essentially these four big regions, because that's where it matters the most. And uh, I guess that's the next big question, which is, what is the big number? Who is fighting over it? Because the Embarcadero Institute, they are certainly making some publications. Uh, they're a local think tank in, in Palo Alto. They're making publications saying, whatever big numbers you're looking at, uh, they're wrong. They should be much smaller. And I think there's two major reports they did. One was looking at California needs 3.5 million by 2025. This was uh, cited by Gavin Newsom at some point. Uh, it kind of got around, but this is actually not the official report. It was something McKinsey wrote up. Uh, and then there's the official HCD numbers, and they're fighting over both. Uh, but we'll talk talk a little more about kind of where this big number comes from, uh, and I guess the you know kind of the very broad strokes of the pipeline that get you there. Yeah, definitely. So I mean. I think your um, your uh, your comparison to Gosplan um, is is very apt. It's it's kind of an interesting thing that we do, right? So I mean, like uh, you know, we are ostensibly a free market economy in the United States, right? And like uh, in kind of the sort of a free market economy, one of the uh, sort of principal things is that like high prices are a signal of unmet demand, and then you know. Uh, suppliers will increase their supply in order to meet this demand and sort of everything kind of falls back to an equilibrium price. It's sort of the thing they run you through in undergrad economics and such. I mean, how much that reflects reality on the ground is a, it's a different sort of thing. It's probably a, a different podcast, right? 
Um, but, but in general, prices at least can be useful. That's one takeaway people generally have. Yeah, right. No, I mean, prices definitely are useful. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that a, a beer inside Dodger Stadium costs like nine billion times more than a beer just the bar just outside of Dodger Stadium is probably a good indication of, you know, uh, monopoly powers of beer sellers within a location, baseball stadium. Location, location, baby. It's true, right? You know, I mean, you know, you got to you gotta get that... Uh, Get that kind of fizzy Miller Lite to uh, to enjoy the boys in blue. Not baseball without it, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, uh, but I mean, I guess the overall numbers. There isn't a whole lot of prices that reach this pipeline all the way till this final HED number. Uh, and just I guess talk about. I guess it starts with it's first baked in the Department of Finance, and this is I guess the you know really rough draft of everything uh so any any other details you have on kind of you know how that's how that's cooked up yeah right and so like um within the department of finance there's these various tranches of housing production right so we should have a certain number of these units should be built for market rate and then a second tranche of units should be built for below market rate and then some should be built for a very affordable housing right and sort of the way in which a local municipality has to zone to accommodate this man this demand is different based just sort of on um ideas of like you know you can't really build a mcmansion that's going to serve someone making 30 percent of area median income right like it's just sort of a not realistic projection and so that's kind of the uh the general thinking that hcd utilizes when coming up with these uh with these uh housing production targets yeah, it's interesting. I was reading. I was reading. Uh, I think a now defunct a publication called Paul Alto Pulse from 2014. Uh, never heard of it before. So, uh, but it was funny. It was a 2014 article about Rena, and they're saying, "Oh God, you know, you think that uh, Paul Alto's already, you know, building a lot. You think we're already being, you know, dumped upon by all this construction? It's going to get worse. We need to, you know, zone for 2,000 units, 1988 to be exact, in the next seven years. It's like, how are you going to do it? We're already, we're already building as much as we can. But here's the good, here's the good news. You know, Rena is, it's, it's a suggestion. You have to zone for it. You have to have the capacity. But afterwards, you don't have to do it. <laughs> and that's what they're saying in 2014, uh, which is really funny because that's completely accurate. That is until it finally got some teeth uh, with SB35. Exactly, and yeah. Now, <laughs> and now we're seeing places have to at least build part of it. Uh, it is it is notable, though, the mandate is only for the above media, uh, area media income stuff and not the affordable units. You could look this in two ways. One is uh, maybe it's more difficult politics to get people to build affordable housing. The other one too is unfunded mandates. Like anyone can always allow above, you know, median uh, housing to be built, but you can't really kind of point to say you must build subsidized housing and pay for it. I mean, I think you can, but people feel like that's not fair. Give us money to do it. So I don't know. That's, is, is that, is that a right way to look at it? Yeah, I mean, it is true. I mean, like, you know, there's this sort of, we live in this really odd sort of equilibrium point in California right now, right? I mean, so like, I don't know, around the 1960s, 70s, we just sort of stopped building generally in California. And moreover, stopped building in places like here in Los Angeles, there has been these gigantic down zones where we just sort of took areas that were zoned to 
fit, I don't know, thousands of people and then knocked that number down so they could fit hundreds of people, right? So we are in this kind of odd point of scarcity right now in California generally, such that like what would normally be affordable housing, right? Like the sort of um, progression of what would be a new unit and as it sort of ages and becomes less desirable, becomes a nat what they call naturally affordable or naturally occurring affordable housing has really sort of stopped. So such that like, you know, you will see, um, I mean, what's that joke from Silicon Valley, like in the first scene where Richard is riding the uh, tech bus and he's looking for a new place and he's looking at his phone and he's like, why is everything in Palo Alto so expensive? It's so shitty, you know? Um, <laughs> it's, it's right. It's, yeah. No, but, uh, uh, no disrespect to Palo Alto. Uh, uh, nice yeah, place, yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, right. So, I mean, like, if we are going to build what, you know, deed-restricted affordable housing, right? So housing that has to be made available for um, low-income individuals, um, the the sort of financing scheme to get something like that constructed is a bit different, right? I mean, like a developer will throw some money down if they believe that they can turn a profit on this construction, right? That's sort of like kind of their raison d'etre, like why they do exist and stuff. If um, a place is going to be built specifically for low-income individuals, that sort of um, changes that cost calculation, right? And so normally they'd be looking for subsidies from the state, um, from the from the state or the federal government through um, the low-income housing tax credit program and stuff like that, right? So like the financing model gets pretty complex pretty quickly. You have to load it up through external funding and or value capture like IZ uh, mm -hmm. at the local level. Right. But the main thing is it's you know it takes it takes some work. Uh, in any case, you know I can you can I have the numbers from Palo Alto in the last couple cycles because they do this in like seven year chunks for Rena. Mm -hmm. uh, in ninety nine two thousand six, uh, they actually they hit uh, they hit a two hundred percent of their market rate. And then forty-seven percent of their affordable units, their subsidized <clears throat> units. Right. So you know that sounds bad, but it gets worse. Uh, in two thousand seven, two thousand fourteen, uh, you know this is the one that has the last one that is completely finished. They had seventy-eight percent of market rate, or kind of affordable above uh, uh, above median, and then ten percent of affordable. <sighs> just wow. a, just absolutely awful. What Jeez. what a. And uh, you know what's 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 going on, guys? Uh, and then finally, the one they're in. So this isn't done yet, but I'm looking at numbers from last year. Uh, Twenty-seven percent of market, which is like that's a very bad number. They have seventy-five percent to catch up in you know less than uh, you know two years now, and then uh, eight percent of uh, eight percent for uh, subsidized. So not, not not good, but. Uh, so let's. But the overall question is: Okay, so this is you know the cities get these you know mandates of sort, and now they actually have some teeth. But you know why are they going to say that California says you must grow as opposed to saying you can't? And they have kind of a big number. And uh, as far as I see, the Department of Finance number, it's good to separate. Like it isn't so much of this is meant to be you know prescriptive of this is how things should be. It is just saying based upon. Uh, you know, fertility rates and migration patterns. This mm -hmm. is our prediction of what, how, you know, what the population will be at a future date. In this case, it's 2030. 
And I believe they say that the population of uh, California will be 42 million, uh, which is, you know, just a little bit more than we have now mm-hmm. by 2030. And this is, I mean, just to be clear, this is a reflection of the fact that unaffordability is driving people out of the state. We have out-migrations, especially for lower-income people. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, you know, and it's a really difficult thing to sort of try to plan your housing around a projection of what growth will be 10 years in the future, right? I mean, there's so many variables to take into account, right? So, I mean, one of the things that sort of economic literature has shown is that, you know, in periods of economic recession or what we have in California with housing unaffordability, on what they call headship rates, right? So the size of a household generally um, starts rising. So that can be because people don't leave their homes, right? Like, I mean, um, if you are growing up in a place like Palo Alto or Cupertino or one of those cities in the Silicon Valley, right? Um, it's just impossible for you to go and find a place to live on your own, right? So you'll stay at home with your parents, right? Um, a lot of folks will start bringing um, uh, like family members into their house and forming these larger multi-generational households, which also has an effect on housing demand. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, I, it's, I mean, that's a question. How crowded should we be? You know, I think it, it's it's I, if it's a should question, it's qualitative of saying everyone deserves some space, some privacy. I remember reading uh, kind of a goal for like post-war Britain housing, and they said we want to make sure that you know a family with kids they don't have to have you know siblings of different sexes share the same bedroom. You know, which is like okay, well that's a qualitative goal in mind, and uh, I mean I think in California. There isn't like in so far as this, I mean, in, in so far as the Department of Finance, there's nothing qualitative about this. They're just saying that we're getting more crowded. And if you look at, you know, you know, kind of what's going on in recent, it's it's creeping upwards. Mm-hmm. And definitely what, so. do we do, what, what do we do about it? So it's uh, it's uh, it's a good question. Yeah, no, I mean, like. That is, you know, it's it's become an especially acute question right now with the COVID pandemic, because one of the things that we've seen, um, so I mean, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, back like around March and April, there was a, there's a lot of derp being published about um, the the relationship between urban density and the spread of, uh, of the uh, COVID-19 um, virus. The, the great right. scholarship, jo- uh, Joel Kotkin wrote some great <laughs> articles about that. Uh, you said it, not me. Um, yeah, so <laughs> there was a lot of that, unfortunately, um, in the LA Times. Um, uh, what was it's his name? Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo in New York were saying, well, of course, there's an outbreak in New York City. We're the densest place in the United States. Um, meanwhile, um, cities like Seoul, Hong Kong, Taipei, Singapore, with the you know, density that puts anything in the United States to shame, were, I mean, hadn't had cases in weeks, right? So there was just a lot of... Um, uh, I'm trying to be judicious, um, sort of false conflation between um, density and the spread of COVID. But what scholars in the intervening months, um, there was a study from the University of Maryland, um, its public health department uh, back in July, I believe, sometime over the summer, that shows this link between crowding, right? So the U.S. Census Bureau and um, HUD, Housing and Urban Development Federally, um, define crowding as an average of more than one person per room, right? So if you're 
getting into a bunk bed situation or you're getting people like sleeping in the living room and that sort of thing, which is, you know, quite common in California cities, you're starting to see sort of defined crowding, right? And so what we've seen, um, especially here in Southern California, um, the Los Angeles region has some of the worst crowding in the United States of America. Um, we see that in sort of lower income uh, communities of color in Los Angeles, COVID is just tearing through these these households because there's nowhere to socially, socially distance and to, and to isolate if you have um, suspect you've come in contact. Uh, Brittany Mejia of the LA Times is a really great story um, from a couple of weeks ago about how this played out in a house in Boyle Heights, which is a um, East LA, um, really right across the LA River from downtown, um, sort of lower income uh, Latino community. And it's just, it's just tragic, right? So like beyond kind of qualitative assessments, right? Like there is a real public health concern that we should have, I mean, I think as a society, to um, ameliorate these sort of the sort of the, the, the ill effects of crowding, and you know, COVID aside, like crowding leads to lower performance um, in in school, right? Like, sort of, it creates a stressful environment. There's you know, myriad um, ill effects of you know, crowding, um, marital strife, domestic violence, um, things like that, right? Just it's a stressor, and it's just you know, it's not a healthy environment. Um, for people to be living in. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's worth mentioning, you have this headship rate, which is, you know, overall just a number, how many per household. But let's be clear, it is not like people are like sitting on that average. You know, we have a very divided population and we have a lot of people living in plenty of space and then uh, the people who can least afford it you have, you know, you're mentioning communities in Southern California, but, you know, in East Palo Alto, unlike mm-hmm. Palo Alto, you have multiple families crowded into one home. And of course, you know, that's, you know, a lot of people per house. And look at homeless populations. That mm-hmm. is basically dividing by zero in, in the overall average here. They don't have a home. And yet, you know, that's, that's, that's the worst of all. And, you know, so I think it is really, if you want to be humane here, it should be I'd say in my mind about setting a floor, everybody should not have a, a crowdedness above a line, you know, and and instead, you know, we kind of look at this average, which I think, you know, I mean, let's, let's be clear. Prop 13 has kind of locked in a bunch of boomers into big houses. I think it's unfair if we're kind of saying that they work towards the average when really it's, you know, it's two different worlds in a lot of ways. That That's absolutely correct. And I mean, I think like, this idea that this headship rate, that this average, and that's sort of baked into stone. And I mean, there's a lot of, I think, sort of um, uh, sort of systemic racism in this idea that just certain communities are going to have these large headship rates, and that's just some sort of cultural artifact rather than, you know, something that's born of economic necessity. I mean, I, I think a lot when I think about headship rates about the fact that the um, state with, I believe, the largest this and this is sort of this is an old stat. I, I looked into it a couple of years ago, so if it's if it's changed, uh, apologies. But um, the state with the largest household size in the United States is Utah, which makes sense, right? You know, given the prevalence of the LDS faith in that um, um, in that state, that like you know, typically there would be large families, and that's something that's sort of like built for and accommodated for in Utah, right? But Number two is California. And yeah. I think there's really two dynamics at work. 
Um, and I think I don't think many people would, would doubt that. Yeah, I mean, we talk about like kind of like what should you rate the household density against? Should it be a declining population such as New York as a state? Uh, New York, I think you could say like, oh, does that mean there's a bunch of empty houses in Syracuse? You know, is that what they're saying? Uh, as opposed to, you know, we're a growing population. You know, that's what they say. I mean, and there's a question. Is this because like people are having families? Or in fact, people are leaving to have families and then we're full of a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s living with their parents and, and having roommates. It's, you know, uh, it's very hard in one number to, I guess, accommodate all these different types of way people live and which ways are good. I guess Utah people having families, you know, that's their choice. You know, it seems like it's working for them. I think there's a lot of people in California who are crowded up with roommates and they're in their like thirties and they don't like it. <laughs> no, absolutely. Right. And I mean, like, I think sort of the way that, um, our housing allocation process sort of assigns causality like that. Right. So that there would, you know, it's expensive. It's difficult to find housing. It's hard to find adequate housing. Um, and so people are delaying household for, or they're delaying starting family household formation technically. Um, right. And so like that is some, sort of reason why we don't need to build housing like i mean the snake starts eating its tail at that point right and uh you know there's a simpler way to do this it's a way that like it's been done around the world it's the way that you know it kind of used to be done here in the united states and that's like literally when there is signals of demand you build to accommodate that demand um i was reminded just off offhand you have an article in one of your you know posts you had a, a graph of the history of California housing production, and it was single family, multifamily, and like it's incredible uh, to see. Like you know, I think the highest point there's three hundred thousand built a year, and this was half uh, multifamily, half single family. And like I'm looking at this graph, and you know the multifamilies in green, and you know the single families in blue, and it looks like you're running across like some hills, and you got like waist high grass, and then like you get to the end of it, and the hills are like falling down, and like they're dropping off, you know, tremendously. But most of all, the grass, like the multifamily, is down to like you know foot height. You know, there's no one's building that anymore. It just, yeah, that's the store, like. I don't know. I, I think it's just very weird that we kind of qualitatively look at this. But, you know, let's be very clear. The RENA allocations say nothing about multifamily versus single family. It's just mm -hmm. about number of production. And, you know, yeah. you kind of see what people do with it. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, some of the work I'm doing right now, some of my research is looking into uh, why the grass got mowed, right? Why that <laughs> multifamily housing number or uh, sort of production started dropping off. And I mean, uh, I don't think it's much of a coincidence that this starts dropping off um, around the 1960s and 70s when um, explicit racial segregation was um, shot down by the Supreme Court, shot down by the, uh, the, the Fair Housing Act of 1965, right? Um, and so a lot of communities in uh, California, but across the United States, were sort of looking at uh, like kludges to develop to sort of uh, keep explicit segregation going um, implicitly. That's that's an yeah. I look forward to reading this, and I I also read other stuff too about kind of the nineteen early nineteen seventies real estate investment trust boom on multifamily development, and it burst, it, and and it never like basically never recovered. Like that was the end of the entire story. It's I'd love to learn more because it just sounds wild to me. But uh, okay, so back to I think the important people here, the Embarcadero Institute, and their and their reports. 
when they're talking about the 3.5 million, I think they say correctly, the McKinsey, you know, their methodology is pretty clumsy because they really just kind of look at effectively their own version of headship rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are looking at the headship rates of New York State for whatever reason. And they're saying, this is pretty clumsy. And then they have their own methodology, which is at best equally as clumsy and at worst just completely baffling. So you, you wrote an article talking about this report from Embarcadero. Uh, just just talk about you know what, what people should have the takeaway or what, what they did here. Yeah, I mean, well, let's uh, let's start with the McKinsey report, right? So the McKinsey report, for folks that don't know, um, is this report McKinsey did about um, what, how many homes does California need to build by, um, I think, twenty twenty five, I believe That's it was, right. yeah, um, in order to meet its unmet demand and sort of solve California's housing crisis through production, right? And you know, there are a lot of legitimate quibbles with the methodology in that McKinsey report, like like you said. It's based on an average of um, household production in both New York and New Jersey, right? Um, so those were sort of used as a bench or a benchmark for what California should have been. And the idea was, if California had built like New York, New Jersey average, um, we would have had production that looks like X. And then you know you sort of subtract and such, and you get to this number of three point five million, right? Um, and I'll I'll just jump out and say like I think it's very goofy, like. Cities make sense, like they're an agglomeration of people around a space. Like this, the topology of California has a lot, like has you know Stockton and Fresno as well as you know Palo Alto. Like it is not one kind of you know lump of people you can just multiply a number by. And I think saying like, oh, is it more like, is it more like Syracuse, Buffalo, in New York City, or is it more like you know Austin and El Paso? Like it's like that's a very weird way to group things in my mind. Yeah, it is. It is a bit odd. I mean, like, but it sort of gets back to the larger point of like, okay, so is there a magic number that once you know California will have a housing crisis at three million four hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine homes, and then once we hit that magic three point five million, like you know, balloons shoot out of the sky and stuff, and fireworks, and housing crisis is over. And I think like you know, that's a really simplistic way of looking at things. Um, but like it's really not any secret nor i don't think it is controversial amongst people who seriously uh, study this thing um the housing crisis that like california has a drastic drastic housing deficit so how large of a number you want to put on that depends on sort of how you're modeling the severity of this right and i mean i don't know like going back to the goss plan analogy like whether um, we should be looking at like, you know, our five-year plan target for housing production. And if we can dig enough holes, we all get the Stakhanov prize and we're, uh, you know, comrade of the month or something like that. Um, but so they take, the Embarcadero Institute takes this sort of legitimate, you know, um, issue with the McKinsey report and then just sort of just goes in a very, very odd direction with um, some of their calculations, right? So, like, I don't know. I think it's a sort of example of kind of reducto ad absurdum, right? Like, yeah. yes, there is there. You could have a dis, a difference with um, this three point five million figure and using New York, New Jersey as a um, as a benchmark, right? But then, okay, the core change for I guess you know pass one of the Embarcadero Institute is okay. Instead of 
2.63 per household, which, you know, mm-hmm. that's a, you know, I'd say to me, that's a pretty high number. That's a New York number. They say, let's use 2.84, which is Texas. And I guess that's because Texas, like California, is more fertile as opposed to the old and dying New York. I don't really think that's perhaps true. But in any case, they're kind of saying like, well, if we take a good number instead of a bad number for our sake, it's better for us. So I'd say, okay, it's pretty sloppy. But, you know, I mean, ultimately, you can say 2.84 instead of 2.63. You know, that's not insane. It's just kind of it's kind of goofy and sloppy to begin with. Right. Yeah. And it's very I mean, like it's sort of reducing something as complex as like modeling demand for housing to a ratio, which is insane, right? Like, I mean, if, if that were, if it were that easy to sort of model housing demand, like using an Excel ratio, like, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast. I would be working for some real estate company and making millions and millions of dollars. Um, Unfortunately, it's a lot more complex. Well, go on. Yeah, yeah I'm just saying, like, and it doesn't even, like, the people I hear all the time saying, oh, can't we just build out in the Central Valley? You know, go to California City, some big empty plot, and just build everything there. It's like, well, if you're just trying to fulfill a ratio, you can. Like, that that states it. But, like, that isn't really the world we live in. I don't, I don't think a lot of people around here would be helped if California City gets a bunch of housing. No, of course. And I, I mean, like... Going back to Texas, right? Like when you look at Texas, the reason there's a sort of difference in the number of homes built in Texas, right? Like uh, why this ratio is a bit lower is because Texas is having this sort of unprecedented population boom driven, you know, in in a not insignificant part by people fleeing the high cost of housing in California, right? So the largest yeah. destination for out migrants from california is the state of texas right harris county houston um uh austin's county whose name i forget off the top of my head just now places like that right so people are sort of leaving california and heading off to texas right so california or texas is having this population boom the cost of housing is still cheap in texas because texas's sprawl model can be sort of accommodated they haven't hit the carrying capacity around their transportation infrastructure like a lot of our cities have. Um, you know, we sort of have this raw model going back uh, several decades here, right? And so Texas sort of has this housing deficit based on this large influx of people. But Texas production numbers are so much higher than California's, right? So like California has this 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 um similar ratio to Texas because people are leaving and our housing production has been just stagnant for decades, right? So, I mean, like, you're just working with a denominator issue here. It's also a matter of kind of what kind of statefulness are you incorporating? What is the history in this ratio? And if you're looking at Texas, uh, you know, they have a certain ratio of people to housing, but it's notable that in the last X years, they've been keeping up, which means a couple of things, you know, they have the momentum, they have the capacity, and they also have a stock of housing, which is depreciating in a kind of sweet spot that's going to get cheaper in a few years. As opposed to California, I think over half of our housing is like built in the 70s or earlier, you know, it's like, that's not going to depreciate more than it already is, you know, if, if it's already, you know, close to 40, you know, plus years old, it's like I think you probably maxed out what the actual rotting of the structure is. And like we don't have that nice stock from the 80s and the 90s that is going to be like aging into affordability because we didn't build it in the first place, which is very different than Texas and us. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's the, that's the dy- dynamic that we're working with here in California. I think in that blog post, I um, include this graphic by uh, Dowell Myers um, and a team of researchers over at um, USC's Price School um, that sort of shows the effect of this, right? So like when there isn't any, um, when, when, when higher income people don't, are priced out of home ownership, right? They start moving into this higher tranche of um of, of, of rental housing, right? And the people that would normally be buying or renting into that are pushed down and so on and so forth until you get to the lowest tranche of um, rental housing. And now you have sort of middle income individuals or kind of upper middle income individuals outbidding people with low incomes um, for that housing. And I mean, the results of that, you can see on the streets of any California city, right? I mean, our unhoused homeless population in California is the highest in the nation. It's quite atrocious. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a notable thing I, I see in the discourse and everything is a lot of people say filtering is a dumb way to do it. Filtering is never going to create affordability. And I'd say, okay, you know, I actually, I could say you, we need to do better. We need to do more radical stuff. I, I, I get your point. But it doesn't seem like anybody denies that reverse filtering is happening. And it is. Because, I mean, rich people living in crappy old houses is happening in our uh, like most expensive cities and like i no one is denying it because it just is true which you know implies you've made a mistake when you see people making like high six figures living in some like extremely bad old house no 100 percent. like i mean and that i think is the gentrification dynamic in california that's we're just sadly overlooking right i mean when you go and you see these sort of rotten Victorians, kind of drafty, crappy windows in California, in San Francisco, and see people that are like, you know, really, like, like you said, high six figures fighting each other and baking cookies for a landlord to try to pay some absurd amount of money in there, like that's, you know, gentrification isn't just sort of one of those new kind of like a uh, boxy. Um, yeah. apartment buildings that everyone loves to hate, right? Like gentrification happens when people are, you know, buying into these uh, these these units that previously held low-income individuals. Yeah, it's 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 not just the aesthetics. Aesthetics will not save you. But okay, so so past one by Embarcadero is this kind of let's look at the ratio, but change the the constants, which like okay, whatever. And they say like, oh, it's much lower than we thought. Whatever. Uh, the second one is, I think, in some ways funnier. Is they said, okay, well, let's try to get the ratio from first principles, and they just kind of like have a a, a bunch of x y uh, graph of every state of basically population and housing, and it's more or less a linear line, which is perhaps not surprising. People kind of live at similar rates on average in different states, but then what they do with it's pretty funny. So I should say more about that. Yeah, so um, more or less a linear line, I think, is the operative thing here, right? So, you know, uh, when I first started at California EMB, I was sort of looking at sort of the state of play of, you know, what's out there in, 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 in the great discourse wars of 2020 um, and came across the Barcadero Institute report. Um, and it was interesting because this was about like November of 2020 or so, right? So, um, I'm looking at this scatter plot between um, the number of housing units in a state and the population. And according to the Emparcadero Institute, right, there's this line of best fit. So if you, um, I don't know, kind of basic uh, basic regression analysis for folks, like if you sort of try to minimize the uh, distance between one of the points and a line, right, you're going to create 
a slope and then essentially with that slope of that line you can predict or reasonably model i guess what housing demand should be as population uh, increases or decreases right so hypothetical state would have um some y ideal number of housing units right um it was interesting so like you know someone with the background statistics like um you know having it forced on me through my comprehensive exams for my PhD, uh, I noticed there was a really, really high um, R squared uh, um, number for this line, which is kind of unusual for something like uh, just modeling housing units by population, right? So I- What was it? Was it 996? It was really high. It was 996. Yeah, 996. I'm looking at it right now. So I got a little curious and looked closer um, and noticed- more or less straight line as you said there's a little bit of a curve in the line right so it's funny um the embarcadero institute was modeling this line using a uh, a, a quadratic equation right so essentially like it's it's modeling it as a line with a curve in it right to yeah. better fit every single point which was Makes funny sense. because yeah i mean oh you know big big radio quotes around makes sense um it's funny because you know it was something we had just seen a few months earlier with the trump administration claiming that uh covid deaths would drop to zero by i think it was june of 2020 right yeah. because it, they developed a cubic model that would show it right and so <laughs> which remember that like like if you actually look at the graph like like it started that with like a hump. It's like, okay, this is good. And then like it pistol whips up to like, you know, some crazy, like it's like this snake out of control. It's like, well, this is not really what you'd expect this to look like. And like, it's a question. Like I think people who are, you know, don't know what they're doing. They go into Excel. Yeah. So they, they click the degree up and down and then they find, oh yeah, this gives me the R square value, which is good. End of story. As opposed to what's really the question here. If like you're looking at this ratio, you're trying to figure out what the best ratio is, which means that you want to stick with a linear thing. You know, maybe you have a more sophisticated model, but a quadratic model is just stupid. There's no, there's no good reason it'd be quadratic. No, it's wild. I mean, like, so you know, I I used to teach data science to undergrads at UCSD, UC San Diego, and um, like, one of the things I tell them right when we were doing you know Excel was like, you know, Excel will do whatever you tell it to, right? Like. You can click all the buttons and it'll it'll give you whatever you you click it to give you, right? But like that doesn't mean that what you have is anything meaningful or anything you should sort of put any stock in, right? So, I mean, for people that don't really remember their high school algebra, like a quadratic model is one of those those big parabola guys that you used to model on your TI eighty um, yeah. three in math class, right? So, the important thing to think about there is that you know. If it is a parabola, it means at a certain point, right? If you just think about like what a giant inverted U would look like, there is a peak amount of housing that California should build at a certain population, right? So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I it's a hundred, hundred million, I think, is what. Yeah, a hundred million. So at one hundred million people, California in a, would in have a state. In any in, state. In, yeah, right, it's right. The general in, rule. In hypothetical states. Um, in, in this sort of like quantum state of nature, um, there would be this state would have an optimal number of housing units at 100 million. 
And then at the hundred and um, first million person, the state would start should should start destroying housing units, right? Until when you hit hundred million, you start loving being crowded more, and then you just want it more and more crowdedness. It makes perfect it's a, sense. It's a beautiful thing, and then you get something like two hundred and something million, and then you should have zero units of housing, right? Like so. That's when you hit every, the singularity, and yeah, everyone is in one point, a black hole produced, mm-hmm. uh, produced, and then you have you know perfect housing. Exactly right. We sort of regress to a state of nature. We're hunter gatherers again. Um, you know, we sort of build kind of temporary structures that follow us around as we chase big game. And, and disrupted you know, housing. It's, it's exactly this nice. Is, it's the future that Yimbies want. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know the thing it's, is well, like what's funny is like this doesn't like the thing is if they did the linear graph, it would have been two like a first approximation the same difference but they made it quadratic mostly because they are at once i think you know uncareful unscrupulous and just also to my mind i'll just say they seem really dumb so like it's just kind of like they're just a bunch of children playing with excel and they come with the graph it's like i don't know it's just it's it's on its face extremely unserious and i just think it's very funny yeah, so like if you bend the curve down, you're going to get a slightly lower number, right? And I mean, you know, who's going to read the footnotes? Who's going to look at like a squared term in this equation and say, wait a minute, this is wrong, right? Like not many people. And like I think this gets to a bigger point of what these folks are trying to do here. And it's like, you know, like you said, I work for California Yimby. Before I worked for California Yimby, I was sort of like a vo- I was a volunteer uh, down here in abundant housing, Los Angeles. I was sort of like a fellow traveler to the Yimby movement, right? Like I'm motivated to find holes in this sort of thing, right? Like it's kind of you know like I'm 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 driven to see why this might be wrong. But if you're coming at this from the other angle, right? Like let's say you're a homeowner. Let's say you bought some time in like the '80s, right? And you're sitting on this big, gigantic chunk of equity. And then all of a sudden, these people are coming in and trying to make you build fourplexes in your single family neighborhoods. And, you know, uh, God forbid, put in apartments so that people that aren't millionaires can live in your town, right? Like, if you have this motivation behind you, and then all of a sudden, someone comes along and says, hey, look, here's vaguely math things, right? And you know your status quo view of the world is great then like pfft, awesome give give me more of this give me more slide deck give me more quadratic occasion i don't know what it means but i'm not going to i'm not going to put in the work to uh, to call you out on it yeah and i think let's 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 take a step away from the technical analysis to talk just about how this works in practice and you're you're absolutely correct in my experience i mean uh, i i uh, I've seen this at the Paul City Council, the home home days, but I hear this happening in Los Altos. I hear this happening at higher regional bodies. Uh, I I heard this. I heard some people down in some parts of uh, of some parts of uh, Southern California, including Beverly Hills, you know, refer to these reports. You know, they don't argue the merits in a city council. You know, they go up and they kind of you know let's let's be clear. Embarco Institute, they have a gold plated name. It sounds very serious. They have, I think, very slick-looking PDFs, you know, very serious. And I'd say, you know, this is really what politics is. Politics is 
having the right, you know, stamp on a think tank. And I, I love, like, Matt Brunig. He spun mm-hmm. up his own one-man think tank, the People's Policy Project. He knows what matters the most. You just create a stamp, you create slick PDFs, and you put it out there. I think his actual reporting is good. <laughs> the Marketing Institute's a bit bad. But here, it doesn't matter. You know, when in the city council, they're talking about this arena stuff, uh, Embarco Institute person comes up, they present their slideshow. At the end, the city council people, they just say it's like, well, I don't know, a lot of people made some good points. You know, I think we have to defer to the scholarship of the Embarcadero Institute. They made <laughs> they made some, uh, I, I think, really interesting uh, methodological uh, you know, points about arena. It's like they didn't follow it at all. You just have to say it and then rubber stamp ship it you know it just it's just a uh, plasma liability it's 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 great it's politics at its best yeah i mean like you know the the, the the stuff around housing like the stuff around arena allocations like it's complicated it's really complex and like frankly it's kind of boring right like it takes a really special sort of person to want to sit and like go through this alphabet soup of acronyms and like go through these sort of complex processes unnecessarily complex processes in my opinion right and like get at the nuts and bolts of what's going on here, right? And so you get a city council person um, in a place like, you know, in the Silicon Valley or something like that. The majority of Silicon, or the majority of city council people are part-timers, right? They don't make any money or they make very, very little money off their job um, at city council. They have something else to do, like they got a day job, right? That takes up a bunch of their time. They have no access to staff that have like any sort of training, right? You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a same... big difference between like New York City or Los Angeles proper. These are actual jobs people do. Whereas mm-hmm. Palo Alto, like they're just a bunch of, you know, amateurs. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, and, you know, like, I, I don't want to denigrate local officials, right? I mean, there's, it's, you know, like there's some local officials I know, like you're doing a service. Like you don't have to be there spending all your time to do this, right? Sure. Um, so I don't want, I don't want to like denigrate like the local official, but like, sort of as an institution, right? Like when we think about local government as an institution, right? This person doesn't have much expertise, right? They don't have any time to develop expertise with term limits, right? You serve two terms and then out, right? Um, And at the same time, like you want to do what you think your community wants. You want to be this good sort of trustee of, um, of your constituency, right? And so the way you do that, right, is like you sort of look and you see who's out there in public comment, right? So there's a lot of political science literature. Um, recently, uh, Jesse Yoder of Stanford, uh, locally in Palo Alto, has a good paper about who's giving comment at these uh, public hearings, um, just published recently. And um, more likely, um, also I should uh, shout out uh, the team at uh, Boston University, um, uh, in their book, Neighborhood Defenders, about participation in local uh, city council um, uh, meetings, right? So the people that are there are the ones with the biggest dog in the fight, right? These are the people that um, are homeowners, they're longtime residents, right? Um, special interests. Yeah, they are, they are a group of interested people, you know? You know, ergo, an interest group, right? Yeah. And so you have this pressure of your most vocal but also most likely to participate constituency right the ones that are going to vote you out of office the ones that are going to launch a recall against you if they don't like you 
they're up and screaming about the prospect of even building a doghouse in Cupertino or whatever, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, you get you get a really nice, aesthetically pleasing, you know, great color palette slideshow from a group called the Embarcadero Institute, which you know that that sounds like a thing. Embarcadero Institute, hey, that sounds I already sounds trust real. Them. Yeah, yeah pff, sign me up. You know, they come through. They give a pretty, you know, like here are some graphs, here are some numbers, here is math that I don't really get, you know. But okay, hey, this. My vote, like, you know, like I have cover now. I have, um, you know, I have some sort of like, uh, I'm not, I'm not just pulling this out of the sky. Like there yeah, was a think, deliberation to this. And I think that works, you know, no matter where you drop, if you're, if they are natural allies to NIMBYs everywhere, they speak at the Livable California uh, conferences, conference calls. Uh, but it is worth mentioning in Palo Alto, they're even more, you know, in the weeds of everyone else. Uh, they, you know, so the, the two main uh, founders of it, uh, you know, Gabba Layton and Asher Waldfolger, uh, they, they self-funded the Embarcadero Institute with $185,000. They are both, you know, basically uh, tech millionaires to some degree. Uh, they, in 2016, they each donated 25000 each to Arthur Keller and Lydia Koo, the most, you know, mm-hmm. kind of... Uh, you know, uh, residentialist of uh, the city council people. <laughs> and then this last time, they donated to Pat Burt, uh, I forget one of the person who lost, and then finally Greer Stone, who's actually a advisor and former board member of, I believe he's a board member, I checked that, of the Embarcadero Institute. You know, so it's just very incestuous of these people. So, I mean, I think it's, when you talk about like, oh, you know, these people have, like, I don't even vote it out. You know, in this case, these are their own they're bankrolling them you know, in the meantime too. So yeah, yeah I mean, the fact that someone, so the fact that someone can give a twenty five thousand dollar contribution to a local race is like it puts you in like the you know top point oh 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 five percent of donors to local races, right? I mean, it's a like lot of money. It's an insane if you think about the distribution of city council donations, right? Like people are giving fifty bucks, twenty five bucks here and there to their friends, right? That kind of money is like not just the top one percent. You're like the top percentiles of the top one percent at that point. And I love the fact that, oh, we're an equity group that does this. And like who are these people? They're like tech millionaires, you know, funding all these weird homeowner, you know, millionaires. It's just it's it's very, very odd stuff. I mean, it, yeah, it's it's odd, but like it makes sense in a general context of American politics, right? Like, so this is a sort of similar thing you see to what the NRA does, right? Like, you have this sort of completely indefensible position. You produce some derp scholarship around it, and then a person, you know, like a senator from like a from a red state that you know maybe wouldn't want to vote on guns, but now has an energized constituency screaming at her every day on the phone and has you know the nra producing some sort of like a you know killer study about more guns less crime or something like that you know it's 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 how interest groups politics work in a nation as you know as unequal with the levels of income inequality that we have in the united states yeah it's it's you know not exactly like the press catches up you know when you have you know uh, lung cancer studies, then the Marlboro Institute has one paper about it. Then you get like, there's a lot of pressure to have everyone cover this one study that shows that, oh, yeah, smoking actually is good for your lungs. And like, it's like, and they run for that for decades before anyone, you know, catches up. You know, it's just, uh, 
it's running out the clock in a lot of ways. Just yeah, you know? that's that's one hundred percent right, and it's a really good point you bring up about the press, right? I mean, like one thing that we've seen over the last three decades in the United States, just the gutting of the um, the press, especially the local press as an institution. Um, you know, my first job out of college was I was a reporter. I wrote for the Sacramento Bee for a number of years. Um, and, you know, like all new reporters, you get stuck on the municipal government beat, right? So this was oh, like yeah. 2006 or something like that, a long time ago, right? And um, I was covering, I think, three or four city councils at the time, which is craziness, were, right? Were any of them the same night or you at least have, you know... No Thankfully, kind of they they kind of space them out, you know. Like there's a little bit of overlap and stuff, so I can kind of you're jetting across from different places. Oh yeah, fun four nights a week. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, you drink a lot of vending machine coffee. It's a it's a lifestyle, right? I mean, but that is to say that like I don't know what the B staffing levels are these days, but I doubt that there's one person doing four. Like maybe one person is doing something like fifteen now. Um, yeah. I don't know what the Merc looks like, but I remember the Merc, the, the San Jose Mercury News had a uh, had one of the biggest staffs in California, and like I forget what their final numbers are now. It's like like a dozen or so of reporters on staff. Yeah, I think uh, the Palo Alto local ones have lost like a long time uh, cover uh, cover of of the Palo Alto City Council. It's it's a bloodbath out there, you know. It's it doesn't make you a lot of money to cover these things, especially with classifieds dying, you know, mm-hmm. in the last you know two decades. Uh, it's not 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 pretty, uh, but. I think it's also worth mentioning that it's really like you kind of talk about the old the old model of city council was very self-contained and very strong, which is like you want housing? No, you can't have housing. End of story. Now, the arena allocations actually has real teeth to say no, you must build at least some housing. And this is why the Embarco Institute switches from just local control to saying no, we must fight the the levers of power in in the statewide gospel plan for housing, which is I think necessary. I think they're doing a pretty bad job of it. I think they're not really winning over anybody except the extremely gullible. I think just like I think that's one thing. The statewide people don't really like the local control diehards because they're ridiculous, intransigent, and just kind of just hard to work with. So it's I, I it gives me some hope that these people are kind of dead enders. Yeah, I mean, I think just the, the the crisis in California has got to this point where the status quo is just somewhat – it's just completely unsustainable, right? Like, I mean, you know, um, we can have housing inequality like you see in countries like Brazil um, if we just keep on the path that we're keeping on. Um, unfortunately, I mean, the way American government is set up uh, – the status quo is really, really hard to overturn, right? And so it's really easy to block. Uh, it's really difficult to pass. Thankfully, we've seen a lot of you know really great legislation statewide um, over the last couple of years that's helping us move in the direct in the correct direction. Um, and hopefully, we're going to be seeing some more um, legislation this year um, down the pipeline. And hopefully, people, um, state elected officials, will realize that you know. We are in this untenable crisis in the state of California. It has ramifications for uh, the environment, has ramifications for um, income inequality, has ramifications for racial justice. And, you know, the time to dither around and the time to sort of take half steps is was gone decades ago and that we need something now. 
Yeah, it is. The accelerationists in a lot of ways have won. California's gotten so crazy for so long. It's just a mess. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, short of anything like a constitutional amendment uh, to save local control, which is they're talking about, I, I, I even think that it's so crazy. I mean, Prop, Prop 22, you know, bad stuff passes. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, I love the fact that, okay, you have the, the big upzoning bills have died. But at the same time, you get all these technocratic arena tweaks have gotten through, which is like, oh, God bless them. You know, they get all the boring stuff through because I think all the NIMBY chuds are too stupid to really kind of follow this stuff. Uh, more more technical stuff. I think the other stuff in the original 3.5 doesn't really matter. They, they also looked at uh, like, oh, look at the overall number of jobs, multiply it by the overall ratio, and we should actually have less housing. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, great. That's clearly stupid let's move on uh i mean just a very dumb you know dumb conclusion uh with no justification other than like let's look at two numbers (laughs) i don't know but uh let's let's if you have anything about that but i'd like to move on to the double counting after this yeah no i thought that's what we're talking about right now is the double counting i I want to talk about the, the double counting is their next report uh which was different than the jobs housing balance thing but the oh oh yeah no you're right yeah okay yeah the double counting is more or less them saying uh, SB 828. SB 828 uh, was, I think the bill was called Fixing Rena or something to that effect. Uh, more or less, it said Rena isn't great for the reasons we mentioned earlier. It takes the Department of Finance projection, takes it as more or less the gospel truth, and rolls with it. Instead, the fixes, I think, had uh, a couple of categories of fixes. You can talk about it, or I have like a few things in front of me, but you know, just maybe a little bit of background at 828. Yeah, no, H28, uh, you probably should handle that one because this is this is when I was still a part-time YMB. Um, was, sure. Uh, not, not full-time in the movement. I don't, I don't remember the specifics around that one. Yeah, so I, I'm only catching up now. I, mean, I think it's, you know, everything is, you know, kludges on top of kludges. But they're saying, okay, you take the, the projection as your base, then you add fixes for a few things. One is target vacancy numbers, mm-hmm. you know, which are saying of healthy rate is 5%. It's always very funny. People say, oh, we have all these vacant houses, you know, when we have 1% vacancy or whatever. This is an outrage when, you know, uh, even the, the, the <laughs> these reports saying the healthy rate is 5%. Uh, overcrowding, we should not mm-hmm. have overcrowding. They say one person per room is a better goal. Uh, and cost-burdened people, mm-hmm. uh, which is people who spend more than 30% of their income on housing. Uh, so I'd say, uh, yes, those are important. I'm very happy that we're actually incorporating cost to some extent. There are things they don't look at, such as commute time. It would be nice mm-hmm. if they looked at more things. Uh, and just other all ge- you know, geographical stuff, jobs, housing imbalance, they don't look at that. But those three things, vacancy rate, overcrowding, cost burden, cool. Uh, but, you know, and then the Embargo Institute, so this, let's let's be, it, it kind of, it bumped up the overall arena rates, you know. And the arena rates, they went up from last time, I think in the Bay Area, 283 to 441,000 this time. So that's a pretty good increase. Southern California, massive, is like 600,000 to 1.3 million. It almost yep. doubled down there. So huge, huge increase. And that's just sort of the, the work that the overcrowding and the um, the cost burdening, um, I guess, triggers, right? Or sort of like a multipliers in A28 we're doing in Southern California. I mean, like, you know, the Bay Area is sort of the poster child for California's housing crisis, just sort of this, just this, the the kind of ridiculous numbers you see out of housing prices there. But I mean, in Southern California, there's a lot more entrenched poverty 
um, than up in, in Northern California, right? So like our, uh, our housing prices here um, are like really kind of digging into people's wallets a bit more, right? I think the thing with the vacancy, if I remember right, and this is in A28 is, kind of, is super complicated. It, it was kind of adding a little buffer um, to the numbers as well, right? So they picked 5% such that it was sort of kind of account for errata as well. Is that, is that correct? I'm not sure. I just I saw they picked the number out, uh, but I mean, of course, you can't really say, "Oh, this is a healthy rate. This is a non-healthy rate." Everything is relative. I mean, I think you can say it's good for renters to have a good buffer stock of empty housing. Uh, you know, it, it gives you more leverage, but you know, it's very hard to say what's correct, what is. And I think you know, uh, the Embarker Institute says like they they oppose the number. Uh, so that that's okay. So their reply is they opposed it. Said. You're double counting. It shouldn't have grown. It should have been back to the old rate. And they gave a few reasons why. They said, vacancy rate, sure, we agree. 5% is right for rentals. But for homeowner housing, it should be 1.3%. Let's be right. clear. 5% is not right for homeownership housing. It's like, okay, I mean, I don't, I mean, honestly, if you really ask me, I don't think we should build another ownership housing ever in California. So, but what, whatever. Who cares? Uh, and it, it, it accounted for a little bit here. Uh, that was like, I think overall in the state, 200,000 would have been off the estimate if you didn't have the vacancy change, which they are only saying part of it is wrong. And then finally, they say uh, cost burdened and overcrowding. You don't need those corrections. <laughs> there, it was already good, <laughs> which is like, talk a little more about uh, the conventional economist, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, 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 response. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. It's it's really weird, right? That there would be sort of this um this claim that a conventional economist would look at the status quo of housing in California and say, you know, what we have in I don't know in in twenty twenty is is perfect. This is an ideal state of nature. Um, we need to preserve this and keep this yeah. as it is. And then only build for the future, such that we can exacerbate this crisis and keep this terrible status quo that we have continuing on for future generations. And somehow that is economic convention when there's literally an economic a convention of micro of you know applied microeconomists and people that study this sort of thing in the exact opposite um, direction. Uh, UCLA's Lewis Center, uh, Shane Phillips, Pavel Makon, and Mike Lenz and Mike Manville. Um, just put out this pretty cool summary um, of the sort of state of play of how new construction affects rental prices, which I want to shout out. Um, it's really good. It's and it's a really good approach for people that really don't have the this, the background in econometrics, so you're not staring at a bunch of Greek letters. Like it's pretty accessible, very well written. So um, super cool thing. But they're they made the difference is they're unconventional economists, and the conventional economist is some old guy who looks at two lines and says, "Oh, this is why people should be homeless." You know, that's what I the guess. conventional economists say. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, like if there was a conventional economist in like 1910 or something like that, when I don't know, maybe even then that thinking was retrograde. But this idea that California shouldn't look at any of the ill effects that decades of underbuilding have produced, you know, two of which are crowding and cost burdening, right? And I mean, something like half of renters in California are cost burden or something to that effect it's like it's it's, it's this insane number rather that is double counting like someone 
at um, someone producing this number is like just forgot to carry the one or something like that, or like kind of made their Excel sheet wrong. Like it's 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 just it's, it's, it seems like intentionally duplicitous. Yeah, it's very. They make it sound like oh, there was actually an error in the grass, but really what they're saying, they're making the Panglossian claim that <laughs> our it was already good. We already had a great system, and it was making the perfect projections. Uh, and you know, which is I think on its face, look at prices. It was clearly not the right projections. It's clearly incorporating a lot of suffering. Uh, and to say oh, that's that's correct. Uh, I, I want to note the there's one technical thing that Gabalate and other people have latched onto, uh, which is their justification, like, oh, they already fixed the the projections. And this was the 2010 headship rates. Did you catch this part? Oh, yeah. And it was supposed to be a um, average between 2000. Oh, no, sorry. They should have used 2010 and not an average of 2000 and 2010 because 2010 was... Yeah. If you only use 2010, this was right at the, the the subprime crisis. A lot of people were still living at home, still a lot of people roommates. That was not the best time. So even the Department of Finance said, "Okay, let's look at the headship rate between 2000 and tw- you know 2010, because uh, I think 2010 is just too crazy." And you know, you know, so you say like, "Okay, does this mean the Department of Finance was good in 2000, bad in 2010?" And if you go back to it, well, in any case. I think this small tweak of looking at the headship rate in effectively 2005 is not like an overall fix in the way SBA 28 is. And to say, as Gab Layton does, you didn't need to fix it. Don't look at cost burning, overcrowding. You already fixed it by looking at 2005 headship rates. It's like, no, what are you talking about? This is goofy. No, it's wild. I mean, because like, I mean, when people use headship rates, generally 2010 is kind of tossed out. Like it's a really aberrant year. Um, uh, Dowell Myers and um, I'm spacing on the first name of this guy, Park, um, is a freaking co-author there at USC, um, do sort of a similar study on this. And they just toss 2010 um, where they use some sort of like weighted average of it because it's just 2010 is such an anomaly of years, right? Like, um, you know, people are staying at home. People are crowding into households and such because, I mean, the economy was the worst it's been since the Great Depression. Um, so like, I, that's just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of derpy to me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like you, one you, of the... you use the census numbers, you use them, but like, they're not always very clean or useful numbers. 2010 is a bad year to use the same thing too. With like the seven year estimates, it's kind of goofy because yeah, you did in 2010, this was after subprime. Then you're doing it like around this cycle now. And you know, now it's like, Oh, this is wrong because of COVID changes everything. It's like, well, when is the good time, you know? Seven years, a lot is always changing. Right. I mean, like, you could go back and do 1990 headship rates, but then there was a miniature recession in 1990 as well, right? So, I mean, yeah. I think it speaks a lot more to the effectiveness of using headship rates as, like, a really determinant factor. Sure. So, I mean, um, using, like, you know, there was a recent report um, that came out. It's a team of, like, eight of California's just, real eminent housing experts uh chris elmendorf from uc davis law jessica trounstein from uc merced's department of political science right um the three aforementioned folks from the lewis center and some other folks ethan elkind um uh, from berkeley was on there as well and they um looked at just the housing jobs imbalance right that's that one factor and found that if you factor that in properly the bay area should be getting something like 250 additional 
units to its arena allocation over that 441,000 that sure. it was assigned in this current cycle, right? So, I mean, um, I don't know. It's like, hard to say, like, yeah, it's like we're in such, I mean, everything is so screwed up. Like, really, in seven years, what should you aim for to fix all this? I don't know. Like, I don't, I honestly think it's maybe multiplied by a factor at 10. I, I feel it's very goofy to try to figure out what you're going to accommodate because it's kind of like what is the new wedge of additional housing and then you fix i don't know it's 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 all broken you know i think i think we need a kind of different system that iterates and tries to get prices that make sense for once or something no i think that's absolutely correct and i mean i think we should be looking at you know we should be instead of thinking of housing unit production goals like we should be looking at affordability as a metric we should be looking at commute times as a metric right if we want goals that will really sort of further a better kind of more just california we should be looking at trying to keep people out of cars for these insane commutes that they're that they're making right people should be able to live within like a 30 ish minute commute on mass transit from where they work people shouldn't be having to crowd 10 people into a into an apartment right like these are the sort of goals we should be looking at right rent shouldn't eat up 40 45 percent of your income right like that i think is a more it's a more worthwhile thing to pursue than just some, you know, magic number that we should hit. Right. And I think like zoning to the extent that it should exist should be, um, to sort of done in the service of that. Yeah. I think looking at outcomes and try to match them is a pretty sane thing to look at. Uh, but let's talk about one more thing that the Embarker Institute, I think there is, there's, some like obvious wisdom in here, but it's very funny how they approach it, which is the constant refrain, we're already building enough market rate housing. We're not building enough affordable housing. And like I mentioned earlier, I mean, like even Palo Alto, like in their in their own like hitting arena, yes, they have always failed at affordable housing more than market rate. This is nothing new. But the real question is, okay, I, I agree. It would be great if we can create cheaper housing more than more expensive housing uh, but how do you do it you know and they uh, and i think the weird line in my mind they cross is they want local control they love local control but they say cities aren't able to afford to build affordable housing so like what do they want like i don't know i'm, I'm stumped here i mean i think like it's really just an issue of a disingenuous want for any housing affordable or otherwise, right? I mean, if you think about the wave of municipalizations that took place like around the 1960s and such, like these, a lot of these communities were built specifically to be exclusionary, right? And to keep certain people out, right? And that certain people was often, you know, uh, racial and ethnic minorities and low income individuals, right? So this idea that, you know, all of a sudden, like, no, we are welcoming Palo Alto and such and like, come, please come live in apartments. Like it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of laughable, right? Um, so this idea of no, how just affordable housing becomes kind of a convenient out. You can kind of keep your progressive bona fides, but say like, we only want a thing that is impossible. You know? Yeah, it's it's very it's it's really strange because yeah we want a thing which is impossible and we have no sane system to actually <laughs> build at the level because like it, like you can look through the the process to get affordable housing built in Palo Alto is insanely hard mm-hmm. and they don't do it they just yeah. don't do it and like okay they say like okay the, the Embarker Institute they they list all these things saying like the problem is we don't have 
state redevelopment agencies having money towards affordable housing anymore. I mean, let's be clear, at its peak, this was something which was much smaller than uh, like federal light tech funding. This mm-hmm. is 1.5 billion versus 5 billion. Yep. Uh, so that's that's thing one. Light tech is king compared to this. So mm-hmm. Thing two is we've had more bond issuances to have affordable housing. So there is money out there, but okay, here's the here's the punchline. This money isn't going into Palo Alto. Like they're not building it there. And they like I listen to them. They say, "Well, you need to understand Palo Alto's high land prices. It's it's just not going to happen here." It's like okay, what are you going to do about it? Like, what is, like, you, they just whine and whine and whine that they want local power, but they also are just babies who say, we can't do anything. It's like, what is your, what do you want out of this world? It just, it's maddening to me. I mean, yeah, like, so the end result after all of this is you get no new housing, and it's like, oh, no, I've got no new housing. <laughs> ah, shucks. Oh, well, yeah. you know, yeah. next time, right? I mean, and it, it speaks to a point. You, you mentioned all the financing mechanisms for affordable housing, but even when all of these magically get into play, you run up against local control. So you run up against um, people complaining that, oh, no, the project's too big. It's out of scale. There's no parking. The massing is wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it gets into C- uh, into California Environmental Quality Act issues. It gets sued. It gets taken to court. All of these delays add cost, and that just eats into the funding, right? So it's a great yeah. story from Liam Dillon in the um, the LA Times uh, uh, about a year ago, I think, something like that, um, about building affordable housing in Solana Beach and just how eventually these units just ended up costing something close to a million dollars per. Right, which is obscene for a townhouse. And if you're getting to the point where each affordable housing unit costs on average eight hundred thousand dollars, you're not going to get much of it. Um, yeah. And I mean, and they, like, what are they willing to give up? Because I'd say, if you really want affordable housing, you should say, okay, let's do the right thing. Please take a knife to my throat. I am giving my my life up to the service. Palo Alto is now a ward of the state. The state now can place affordable housing anywhere. You know, a state, you know, public corporation can build public housing. You mm-hmm. know, in the middle of Palo Alto, there's it's by right. No, you know, no approval process. And, you know, they don't want that. Like, they fight against any sort of by right affordable housing stuff because they're still a bunch of busy buddies who just will complain about anything what, even when they get it. So, I don't know. I'd say either they need to grow up and actually form a local public housing authority which is going to build this stuff or stop whining and just stop existing as a city. Like, that's their two options to me. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, what you have with local control is just this sort of this hideous sort of incumbency protection for people that have this rapidly appreciating asset. And I mean, it makes it's in their perfect financial interest not to allow any competition, right? Any new housing devalues the one scarce asset that they currently own. And I mean, if as much of your total wealth was tied up into a single asset, as most people is with housing in this country, like the incentives are all there to do the absolute wrong thing all the time. Yeah, it's 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 a bad system and I think, you know, there it's hard to get from here to there. I just am positive. There's one thing I'm positive of, it's Gabalaton and the rest of the Embarkerator Institute have no actual desire to change anything to create a better world. It is just pure, you know, fear and you know and, and just, you know, uh, just creating any kind of illusion that, you know, they are for equity 
and it's I I just think it is at once sloppy, goofy, meaningless, and I think fundamentally evil. And I just I just don't know. It's like I think it's very nice. I'm pretty sure that the higher levels people are ignoring this, but it's it's I think it's uh, local controls. I think the last pier in that it just sounds good to people. I don't know. Like that's why it makes me. Kind of, it's very hard to undo that part. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like it's sort of one of the uh, the many faults of American federalism is you have this sort of this veto power by um, this kind of like this tiny municipality, <laughs> the tiny, tiny landed elites. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think thankfully, in the case of the Embarcadero Institute, um, I think there was just an incident about a week ago in Los Altos of um, them trying to cram a presentation in that wasn't properly noticed. And it was done during public comment or something weird like that. And thankfully, some other members of the council opposed that. So hopefully people are getting wise to the scam um, and realizing that, hey, like, you know, you're an elected official, you are uh, you are sort of a custodian of the public trust, and it's time to start working for the people of California. Oh, funny. So, uh, yeah, basically all I wanted to talk about. Any other final thoughts, feel free to share, or you just kind of say where you can find your you know, blog post and other analysis. Yeah, so uh, check out CaliforniaYimby.org. Uh, or sorry, CAYimby.org. Um, I have some stuff up there. Um, follow us on Twitter. We're doing a lot of stuff. We're making a lot of moves this legislative session. Um, do some really exciting stuff. So uh, stay tuned and, uh, and come check us out. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure. Hey, Mark, appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. We have been talking to Stan Aklobja all about the Embarcadero Institute and their bad research. Uh, you can hear uh, this uh, full episode and all previous episodes of the show at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Case Issue, Stanford.